Good morning. We are thrilled that you are here this morning. It is our joy and privilege to be in the presence of God, fellowship one with another. And if you're visiting, we're very thankful for your presence here this morning. This morning, we're going to study uh, the subject matter of Mark 16, 15, and 16. Our Lord, what we typically refer to it as the Great Commission. The Bible uh, is about salvation, and you can hear it even there in our Lord's words. This is after his resurrection. His uh, apostles immediately and subsequent followers are told by our Lord to take this message and to go preach it into all the world and to every creature with the understanding, Jesus says, of salvation, that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. For those who are saved this morning, our study centers around a couple of things. Number one, we want to remind ourselves of what we have done when we were saved, as well as remind us of what we're teaching other people. What is it that we're teaching them and expecting of them? We want to discuss that this morning. The other part of our study has to do with those who are not members of the Lord's Church. And if you are not a member of the Lord's Church, the study this morning is to help you understand what Scripture teaches you to do to be saved. You might, if you know a member of the Lord's body, you may have been invited already to come to worship with them, or you might be invited to have a personal Bible study. And uh, they're going to do that. And, and within that study, you may hear the words, or we might just say it amongst ourselves, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, and then live a faithful life. That's, that's what we say, and that's what the Bible teaches. Question, what does it mean? And when you do that, what exactly are you doing? What is the process that is taking place that ultimately leads to your salvation? That's what we want to study this morning. The first thing in the process of salvation, the Bible is going to teach that we must hear. But what does that mean? When you are hearing, what are you doing? Actually, what you're doing is learning. That's the process that's beginning. The word means to hear, to hearken, to listen to. It actually means also to heed and obey. Hearing is how faith comes. Romans 10, 17, the Bible says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In Scripture, however, when the gospel is being preached or proclaimed, you're hearing new information, and so you're learning something you didn't previously know. But understand that in the Bible, when you're hearing, it's with the intention and act of doing. That God is not simply saying, hear audibly what's being said. It's that you are hearing it, you're learning it, you're understanding it, and within it, there is instructions for you to do things. You can see this in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, our Lord is ending his first address to humanity. It begins in chapter 5, where the Bible says, he sat down and opened his mouth and began saying. You should pause sometime and think about that for just a moment. Why would the Bible tell us that the Lord sat down and then opened his mouth to talk? Is there another way to do that? <laughs> there is not. But it tells us that. Maybe it tells us that because of who is talking. This is God with us who just took a seat. 
And he just began talking. You know what everybody else is in the audience is doing? They're hearing. When he gets near the end of his address, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. He's been talking since chapter 5. He gets near the end of that discussion. And has he been suggesting that all you do is stand in his presence and listen audibly? No. The Lord is saying that hearing my words and doing them makes you a wise person. What if you don't? We'll slide down two verses and you'll hear him say in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. He does not do them. I liken him to a foolish man. When you are being and, and hearing the gospel, when you're being taught it, and you're, you're, what's being done in this process is you are hearing with the intention of acting on whatever will follow. With Jesus, it's never hear and do nothing because the new information you hear will have instructions attached to it. We don't always say it, but we do the same thing as parents. Sometimes you'll give your child an instruction. You'll say, go pick up your room or go clean the kitchen, and then you'll go about your business only to come back and notice the kitchen is still not clean. Typically what parents do here is they go find the child, and they ask, did you hear me? Now what's the parent saying? The parent understood that if you heard me, you would have done what I said. You see, the action is inherent, biblically speaking, in the hearing. Hearing involves the intention of doing what Jesus said, and therefore Jesus would say, be careful what you hear, Mark 4, 24. He would also warn there are false prophets and false teachers, and here's where your concern needs to be. It's not just that you hear information. Sometimes people teach you the wrong information about salvation. It's very likely that if you're a religious person, you have indeed heard something. And it might be the case that what you heard and then subsequently did was wrong. You have to be careful what you hear. Now, why is that the case? Because if you hear the wrong thing and then obey the wrong thing, you are not saved. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus talked to some individuals who were religious. They believed themselves to be saved, and they believed themselves to be going to heaven. And he said to them, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many wonderful works in your name, and did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name? And then I will profess to them, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. These people were religious. These people had heard the wrong thing. They did that, and they were not saved. And so Jesus says, be careful what you hear. Secondly, he also says, be careful how you hear. Luke 8 and verse number 18. When hearing the gospel, and it is your desire to be saved, you have to hear honestly. You have to hear sincerely. 
You have to hear with the intention of obeying. You have to hear and be careful how you hear. Peter would warn in this way. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and many will follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. It is the case that you could be hearing the truth and you could think it evil. You have to be careful what you hear. You have to be careful how you hear. But if you never get the new information, if you never hear the gospel, then you cannot be saved. The reason for that is if you never hear, you can never learn. And if you don't learn what God has said, then you can't know what God wants you to do. It's one of the reasons that, again, 1 Corinthians 2, 8 through, 8 through 13 is so important. The Bible emphasizes our need for God's revelation, without which we cannot know the mind of God. And if we don't know the mind of God, if we don't know what he wants from us, then we can't do it. We could have the question all day long, what must I do to be saved? But if there's no revelation, if there's no message from God, then we can't answer it accurately. There is a man in Acts chapter 10. You'll meet a man by the name of Cornelius there. Cornelius is described in chapter 10 in verses, the first three verses as, among other things, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. You should understand that man, though devout and though did all of those things, he's not saved. God, however, wants him to be saved, and so what God will tell him is, send men to Joppa to meet a man named Simon, and he will tell you, in fact, slide down if you're there in Acts chapter 10, and notice in verse number 29, when Peter at last arrives at his home, that is why I came, Peter says to Cornelius, without even raising objection when what I was sent for. So I ask Peter to Cornelius, I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius responds by relating to Peter the events that happened earlier in the chapter. He says, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered before God, therefore send to Joppa. Send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, and he will come to you. He is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Notice verse 33. He says, Immediately therefore I sent unto thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Cornelius is a devout man, but he doesn't know what to do to be saved. Who does know? Peter. And so God says, send for Peter. And when he comes in Acts chapter 11, Peter rehearses the matters of Acts chapter 10 in order. And so as he does that, he reaches the point of relaying to the Jews who are withstanding him for going to Cornelius in the first place. He's relaying to them the events. And speaking of Cornelius in Acts 11 and verse number 13, he says of Cornelius, he showed us how he has seen an angel in his house which he stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. 
who will tell thee words whereby thou and all thy household shall be saved. You know, within this chapter, the Holy Spirit is involved, but the Holy Spirit doesn't save people. Within this chapter, angels are involved, but angels don't save people. What does save people? The words. Cornelius doesn't have the information. Peter does. And Peter needs to go to Cornelius and give him the information. It's one of the reasons that we read Mark 16, 15, and 16 and understand this gospel needs to be taken to all of the world. Now, that's always been God's intention. The gospel is for all. However, the reason we have these events in the first place in Acts chapters 10 and 11 is because the early Christians weren't doing that. In Acts chapter 2, Peter and the other 11 preached that this gospel, this salvation, the promise is to you and to all those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. But when you start reading your Bible from Acts 2, nobody else is getting the gospel. The reason God intervenes in Acts 9 and 10, and the reason for that is because the other people are not being allowed to hear. Notice Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. The Bible says there, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen. That's that passage we love so much in Acts 8, 4, where the Bible says, then they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. While they did go everywhere, they didn't go to everyone. This verse says, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. What happens to everybody else? They don't have the words. And if you never hear the words, you can't be saved. The Apostle Paul understood that. It's their charge. He would say of himself and the other apostles, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not of ourselves. What's he saying? The treasure is the gospel. It's the words. The apostles have it. We have it. Where is it? In us. We're the vessels, the apostles, the clay pots. We have the treasure in us. And what happens? Then we take it to other people so they can hear it. What happens if we don't? And then they can't be saved. There is a note here to Christians that's worthy. We have the treasure. Oh, not like the apostles. We're not inspired. We don't have it directly from the Holy Spirit. But we have the treasure. And if we don't share the good news, then people can't be saved. The gospel is God's power to save. And people can be around us all day long and never hear what they need to do to be saved. And if they never hear, then they can't be saved. In fact, it's clear that Jonah understood this. And it's also why God is so unrelenting to get him to Nineveh. You read the book of Jonah in chapter 4, the Bible will say with reference to Jonah that he was angry. He was grieved. He was upset. Now, why was he angry? He admits as much. 
He tells us why he was angry. He says to God, I knew thee, gracious, long-suffering, merciful, goodness, and abundant, and you would forgive. You would relent of the evil. And Jonah says, that's why I fled. Question, what did Jonah take with him? See, when you open up the book of Jonah in chapter 1, God says, the sins of Nineveh to come up before him. And he says to Jonah, go preach against Nineveh, for their sins have come up before me. And Jonah flees the other way. And then you get into all of these events by God and by Jonah and ultimately the fish. And he spit out chapter 3 of that book after Jonah is spit out by the fish. The Bible says, as God returns to him now, go preach to Nineveh the preaching that I bid thee. Jonah arrives at Nineveh, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know what happens when the people of Nineveh hear? They change. They repent. They obey. You know what God does? He forgives. You know what that does? It angers Jonah. And Jonah says in chapter 4, that's why I fled, because I knew you would forgive them. Well, he can't forgive them if they don't repent. And they can't repent if they don't hear and learn what God requires. So Jonah just took the words and fled. In order to be saved, you must hear. It's why the commission is what it is. It's why the Lord says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when you read the missionary journeys of Paul, that's what's taking place. He's going into places and talking to people who've never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. You can see it in Acts chapter 17 with those on Mars Hill. He talks to them. Now, they spend their time in hearing new things and different things and pooling their ignorance among themselves. They love to do that. But then they hear Paul, and they say, he seems to be a setter forth of strange doctrines. He seems to be a babbler talking about new and different things. And the Bible will tell us because they heard him talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They'd never heard that. Some of them said, we'll hear thee again concerning this matter. Acts chapter 18, the Bible says Paul went to Corinth and then taught it to them. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, Paul talked to the Corinthian brethren. He says, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellency of speech or man's wisdom, declaring to you the testimonies of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You need to hear that. When you are obeying the gospel, you are hearing, understanding, learning, but you can't stop there. It's the reason you can't accept Jesus as your personal Savior. That's not what you need to hear. It's the reason you can't say the sinner's prayer. That's not what you need to hear. It's the reason you can't wait for the Holy Spirit. That's not what you need to hear. No, what you need to hear is the gospel. But even when you hear biblically, with every intention of doing, you are not saved. Not yet. Because you have to believe, secondly. When you believe, what is taking place? Faith conviction. That's what's being produced. Hearing leads to this. If we never hear and learn, we can't believe. Belief is the reason we have the gospel account of John, because God wants people to believe. In fact, he dedicated this book with the intention that hearing it 
and then learning it will lead to believing it. John says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, many other things truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. We could have wrote more. We could have wrote different. In fact, there were so many. Chapter 21, verse 25 says, I don't think the world could contain the books. That's how many more things he did. We didn't write those down. We didn't write them all down, but these are written that you might believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believe you might have life through his name. That's what you have to believe. That's what the word means, to believe, to give credit to, to believe, to give a mental persuasion, to be of the opinion of, to have faith, to think a thing to be true, to be persuaded, to give credit to, to put confidence in. In fact, it's a work. It's something that you do. Sometimes people will suggest to you, well, you don't have to do anything. Now, amazing, even they, the very next sentence usually is, you don't have to do anything but believe. So I have to do something. Yes, because belief is doing something. In fact, the Bible goes beyond simply it doing something. It calls it a work. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, some individuals approach Jesus, and they ask him a question. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? These individuals are not interested in following human tradition. They're not interested in making up their own traditions. What they want to know is, what does God require? What is it that we need to do to work the works of God? And Jesus answers. And what he says is in the very next verse. Jesus answers and said unto them, this is the work of God. What is it that you believe in him whom he has sent? You can't be saved if you don't believe. Belief is a work. It involves action. That's why James chapter 2, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, talks about it in those terms. That it's something that we do. It's not something we feel. It's not simply mental ascent. While it begins there, the instruction is always going to follow. And so you're going to do something. In fact, James says if you don't do something after claiming to believe, well, then that's useless. That's James 2, 14 to 17. Faith without works is dead. It's useless, James says. He says also the demons do more. In verses 19, he says, you believe that one, there's one God, you do well, but the demons do that and tremble. They do more than just believe. They at least shudder or tremble because of it. What are you believing? Well, you're believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You're believing that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what you're believing. Quickly again, a note to Christians, please understand that after we're saved, the, the thing and the faith that moves us to be saved is the faith that sustains us in salvation. It's not a different faith. We don't do one thing by way of belief and become a Christian and then do a different thing as a Christian. No, it's the same faith. It's the same conviction. After being saved, we keep on believing. We keep on trusting. And beyond the specifics that Jesus is the Son of God, you believe all of God's Word. You believe everything God says. In fact, if God said it, it's true and worthy of belief. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And so you read a book like Hebrews, written to Christians, people who are saved. He's not telling them how to become a Christian. These are Christians. And what's his message? You need to keep believing because they're being pressured to go back to Judaism. They're being pressured to leave Jesus. And so, so much information in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. Again, renewing, restoring, making sure you hold on to the conviction 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is superior to angels, chapters 1, chapter 2. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to the high priest. Jesus is better in every respect. You need to hold on to Jesus. Chapter 3 and verse number 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. How can a brother have an unbelieving heart? He can stop trusting God. He can stop believing. You know what? Some brethren have. Some brethren have stopped believing in the inspiration of the Bible. I don't believe it's God's word. God still says it is. Have you stopped believing? Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Well, some brethren have stopped believing Jesus has one church. He does. I will build my church, not churches. He doesn't have more than one, never has, never will. Have you stopped believing? Take heed, brethren. Some people have stopped believing. Some brethren stopped believing. Well, worship is designed by God, organized by God, directed by God. You can do anything you want to. Women can preach. Some brethren have stopped believing it. Cannot. Not with God's authority. Not with God's approval. I suffer not a woman to teach. No exercise dominion over man. The Bible says 1 Timothy 2. Some brethren have introduced the instrument, just brought it right into the Lord's service. Oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. If you stop believing, God still says sing. That's all he says. Sing. I can guarantee you this. If you just sing, you'll never go wrong. But some brethren have stopped believing. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Can a person forfeit their salvation? Yes, they absolutely can. You can fall from grace. How do you know the Bible just says it? I mean, it doesn't hint at it. It doesn't beat around. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 4 uses those exact words. Whosoever you are justified by the law, Christ has become of no effect unto you. You are fallen from grace. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to confuse what God is trying to get across. But question, why would God warn you about things that can't happen? Why would we have a passage like Hebrews 3 and chapter 12, verse number 12, saying, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God if you can't depart. Why would he bother writing that? Nobody has ever warned me that I couldn't fly. Eric, now don't go up on that roof. Now you know you can't. No, you don't have to warn me about that. I know I can't fly. I know gravity works, and so I will not be jumping. You don't have to warn me about things that can't happen. No, it can't happen. Eric, you can't sprout wings. Gotcha. No, God is not warning us about things that can't happen. He's warning us about things that has happened. In fact, listen to John's words in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. Wait, he can't do that. Why? Because you can't fall. He can't threaten you with that because it can't happen. So I say, well, you would never say it. How does name get in the book of life then? How can God take a person's name out of the book of life if the name was never in the book of life? And here is God saying, if you add to these words or take away from them, I will take your name out of the book of life. In order to be saved, you must hear. You have to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. When you do that, you must believe. You must believe. But belief alone can't save. James says in chapter 2 and verse 20, 
Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is dead or useless? Verse 24, he says, you see that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. If someone said, well, you're saved the moment you believe, well, they would have told you wrong because you, aren't, you haven't repented yet. That's the third thing. See, in order to be saved, you have to hear, you have to learn, yes, and then you have to believe what you learn, yes, and then what you're being told is now you have to repent. What does it mean? It means turning, changing your mind, to undergo a change in a frame of mind and feeling to repent, to change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence one's past sins, to think differently or afterwards, that is, reconsider. You're going to think differently. Well, how are you going to start thinking differently? You're going to get an information. You're going to learn here the new information, which is going to allow you now to believe what you've heard. And as a result of that, you're going to think differently and change your mind about what you knew previously. Our new mind is about changing our mind about God, about Jesus, about his nature, about his character, about ourselves. There are people who are told, you're okay. I believed I was, you know what Saul of Tarsus believed some things too. Acts 23, 1, he says, I have lived with all good conscience up to this day. In Acts 26 and verse number 9, he says, Brethren, I thought within myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did. I had a clear conscience, and I thought I was doing the right thing, but he was not. You have to change your mind. See it in the Bible. Look in Matthew chapter 21. The Bible is just wonderful in that it doesn't just give us the information. It paints these beautiful word pictures for us, and it tells us exactly what the Lord wants us to do, and it describes it in ways and in language where we can understand it. Here is a scene painted by our Lord of a father asking his two sons to go to work in his vineyard. Verse 28, he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered, I will not. I know every parent loves that, don't you? You just love it when you say, son, go do X, Y, and Z for me. And your son looks you right in the eye and says, I will not. That's what happened here. Bible goes on to tell us, though. But afterward, he regretted it. He repented and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. Don't you love that? Here is a different kind of son right here. Now, that's the son. I will, sir. But keep reading. The Bible says he did not. One of the sons said, I will not, and then regretted it, repented, changed his mind, and went. The other son said, I will and did not. Jesus asked the question, maybe you can answer it. Which of the two did the will of his father? The people who he was talking to said the first. That's what it means to repent, to regret, to change one's mind, and then heartily amend one's ways. That's biblical repentance. It begins with God. In fact, there is a father in the parable, not accidentally, because 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 says, godly sorrow worketh, leadeth to repentance. It doesn't say godly sorrow is repentance. When did this boy repent? When he changed his mind and went. 
Without the going, there's no repentance. There can be regret, but not repentance. It's not repentance until you change your mind and you heartily amend your ways. That's biblical repentance. It begins with godly sorrow. Paul goes on to say the sorrow of the world work at death. There are individuals in the Bible who show us very good examples of these two things. In the Old Testament, there is King David and King Saul. There is also in the New Testament, Peter and Judas. You probably know this, but I'll say it anyway. All four of these individuals actually said the phrase, I have sinned. When Judas threw the money down, I think Matthew's account, chapter 27, takes the time to tell us he regretted it. In sorrow, he did that. We know Peter went out and wept bitterly. Sorrow was felt, but sorrow is not repentance. Sorrow after a godly sort leads to repentance. And if one is going to be saved, he must, she must change her mind, change his mind, and then amend their ways. You cannot live the same life before Jesus and after Jesus. You cannot. There must be a change. When the Apostle Paul went to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the Bible says of those individuals, when they heard, Acts chapter 18 and verse 8, many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. I know they repented too. Even though the word repentance is not in that verse, they did those three things. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul wrote to them, he wrote to them about their conversion. And he also wrote to them about their former life. And what he says to them is recorded in verses 6 through, or verses 9 through 11 in 1 Corinthians 6. There he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Paul then says, and such were some of you. What were they? They were all of those things listed. These individuals who tell you that you don't have to change your life. God loves you just as you are. You just be in the way you are, and God's going to be. He is not going to be okay with that. That is not Bible teaching. Be careful what you hear. That's not right. The Corinthians did not stay the same as they were when Paul entered the city. When he met them, they'd never heard of Jesus. You know what he did? He gave them the information. And so verse 18, 8, chapter 18, 8 says, many of the Corinthians hearing, Paul came. He came from Athens. When he left Athens, he came to Corinth. They'd never heard of it either. He taught it to them. They heard it. Not only did they hear it, they believed it. How do you know? It's what the verse says, Acts 18, 8. Many of the Corinthians hearing and believed. What did they do then? They changed their minds about their lifestyles. They didn't keep living them. How do you know that? We just read it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, to that same group, Paul says, do you not know these lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't you be deceived. You know what? There's people deceiving people today. 
Paul says, don't be deceived. And then he enumerates all of these lifestyles will not. And then he further says, and such were some of you. You used to be that way. What changed their minds? They repented. They came to learn that's the wrong way of living. That's out of step with God. That's not according to his revelation or his character. And in order to be saved, we can't keep doing it. And so they amended their ways. And Paul says in verse number 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you are justified. What changed? They repented. They were sorry after a godly. How sad is it? that individuals will go around to other individuals and tell them, you don't have to do that. You just keep living your same life and never repent, and God is going to save you. Friends, it's just not true. In fact, Jesus said, I tell you, nay, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, it's amazing, is it not, when the Bible and our Lord takes the time to say something, the exact same thing, one verse apart. Luke 13, 1 and 2, he heard about some people and the Galileans uh, uh, who, who, who upon, uh, whose blood Pilate mingled with sacrifice. And he says, now, do you think they were sinners above everybody? I tell you, no. I tell you, no. unless you repent, you'll also perish. Uh, what about the tower that Siloam that fell on 18 people? Do you think they were sinners above? I tell you, no. That's Luke 13, 3 and 5. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish perish. And there are individuals telling other people, you don't have to worry about repentance. You just keep being the way you are, and God is going to accept you. I tell you, nay, unless you repent, you will perish. Those are the words of our Lord, friends. If you're going to be saved, you got to repent. Now, you're still not saved yet, though, because now you've heard and you've learned. It's absolutely right. You believe that's fantastic. You got to do that. Without faith, it's impossible. You got to repent. You got to change your mind. You don't just regret you change and then you do. What are you doing? Part of what you're doing next is to confess. What am I confessing? What's happening when I confess? When you confess, you are admitting something. You are acknowledging something. And you are changing and aligning a new allegiance. That's what you're doing when you confess. That's what the word means. It means to speak in accordance, to adopt the same terms of language, to engage in a promise, to assent, that is, to covenant with, to acknowledge, quite literally, to say the same thing as another. With regards to Jesus, it's precisely what the Jews tried to prevent people from doing. They did not want people to confess. Confess what? Well, if you turn to John chapter 9, you'll read it. In John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind from birth. Jesus corrects the misthinking of the day by saying that man didn't sin, nor his parents did sin. He's born blind. He was born blind that the works of God may be manifest in him. Jesus then healed that man who was born blind, and then the controversy began. Because the individuals who were aware of his healing took him and that information to the Pharisees. And when they heard it, they sent for him, and they questioned him. Are you the man that was born blind? Yes. Did he heal you? Yes. Who do you think he is? Drop in with me at verse number 17 and listen to the conversation. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? That him there is Christ. What do you say about Christ? He said, he opened my eyes and he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe. They did not believe him. 
And so the Bible says that he had been blind and received sight until they called for his parents. So they didn't believe the man. Clearly, you were never blind in the first place, you dishonest individual. Clearly, you were not blind. Get his parents in here and ask them. And so they do. Verse number 19, they questioned him saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. If you were their son, wouldn't you have been glad they owned you? <laughs> Dodged a bullet there. We know this is our son. Well, thank you. They go on and continue, and they say they double down, and we know also that he was born blind. Now, how his eyes were open, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Why did they say that? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This whole entire chapter is about confession. Confessing what? We don't confess our sins. We confess Christ. What we're doing is confessing, acknowledging, admitting, announcing to the world our allegiance is to Christ. In fact, we're going to say the same thing he said. We've changed our minds about him, and now we're going to admit it and acknowledge it. Look with me quickly at Acts chapter 3 and listen to this conversation, and please read this process in action as you're reading Acts 2 and 3 and 4, and as you're going through that, when these apostles are in discussion with those individuals, what we're talking about is exactly what's taking place. These individuals have some beliefs about Jesus. They denied his sonship. They denied his divinity. They rejected him as the Messiah. They have some very strong beliefs about Jesus, and he's not who he claimed to be. Well, guess what they're asked to do? They're asked to change their minds about Christ. In Acts chapter 3 and verse number 14, Peter after and John, after healing the man and the crowd now gathering, verse number 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son or servant Jesus Listen to the next phrase, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. That's what you did. They go on, but you disowned the Holy One, righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted unto you, but you put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, the fact that we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith of him comes through him has given this man this perfect help in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. You didn't know, but guess what? You know now. Times of this ignorance, Paul, he, say, he continues, Peter does, but the things which God has announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, he has fulfilled in Christ. They continue to preach and teach Jesus, and people have to change their minds and align themselves with the conviction and proclamation that I confess that Jesus is the divine Son of God. That's what he said. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, I know Messiah is coming, she said. We know Messiah is coming. Jesus said, I am. 
The one that's speaking to you is the Messiah. That's what he said. In John chapter 5, he said, God is his father. The Jews understood him to make himself equal with God. John 5, 17 and 18. In John 5 and 8 and verse 58, Jesus said, I am eternal. Imagine that, standing in the presence of an individual claiming to be eternal. That's exactly the claim. Men said, you're not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I don't have a beginning. Abraham does, but I don't. No, he is claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God. That's the claim of John 10, 30 and 31. I and my father are one. To Philip, he says, if you've seen the father, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. What are we doing when we're confessing? We're saying the same thing. We're saying, I agree. I assent. I confess Jesus is the divine son of God. Now, listen, that does not come without implication. Because Jesus, if Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, if he is divine, if he is the Savior of the world, the Lord, the rule, the master, then that means we are subject to him and to his will. That means we have to obey his word. That means we have to keep his commandments. That means I have to put myself to death. That means he's in authority and I'm not. And without this, you could not be saved. In fact, Jesus would question you why you would even bother. In Luke 6 and verse 46, Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why would you give me the title of ruler and master of your life if you're not going to subject yourself to me? Why would you feign to make me believe that I'm your master if you're not going to be my servant? And why would you go through the motions? Jesus is asking. You will be asked if you come, if you are willing if you want to be saved, you will be asked, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You'll be asked that. Why? So you can confess. So you can say, yes, I believe. I consent. I say the same thing he said of himself. Paul says we do this with our mouths and it leads us unto salvation. And while all of these things are connected and necessary, you're not saved yet. You have to hear, but you aren't saved because you must believe. Can't be saved without belief. You have to believe, but you're not saved yet because you have to repent. Jesus said, if you don't, you'll perish. Can't be saved without repenting. You have to repent, yes, but you can't be saved without repentance because you've got to confess. Well, surely you've got to be saved now. No. If someone pronounced you saved by now, then, friends, you're not saved. If they say you saved when you heard, you're not saved. They say you saved when you believe, you're not saved. They say, you saved when you repent, you're not saved. You saved when you confess, you're not saved. Why not? Because the Bible says you must be baptized. That's what Jesus said. Friends, all of those things have given you the right to become a child of God. That's the way John words it in John 1 and verse number 12. John says of Jesus, he came to his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the privilege, the power to become children of God. Well, they weren't children of God by receiving him. They weren't children of God by believing in him, but they had the right to become. How could they? They had to be baptized. The very definition of the word baptism 
is to immerse, to make whelm, to dip, to plunge, to immerse, to submerge. It's one of the reasons we can't change the, the mold. We can't go around making the word immersion means to pour. It doesn't mean that. We can't go around changing the word to mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean that. It means immerse, submerge. It's likened to a burial. Scripture explains its meaning in the various contexts in which it's used. One of those says, it occurred where there was much water, John 3, 22, 23. Acts 8, 30 to 39, they came to a water, and the eunuch says, see, here's water. What's hindering me? The Bible tells us they both went down into the water. You can't be saved without being baptized. Baptism is for those who believe. That's why we don't baptize babies. You have to believe, Mark 16, 15, and 16. He that believeth and is baptized. First, they don't have any sins, and so we don't baptize them. Secondly, they can't do the first four things. They can't hear, believe, repent, confess, and so we don't baptize them. It's also why we don't baptize anybody who doesn't want to be baptized. I mean, if you don't want to be saved, listen, then you just won't be saved. Somebody say, well, Eric, that's awful mean. Let me say it nicer. If you don't want to be saved, then you just won't be saved. We can't force anybody to be saved. We can't trick anybody, trip anybody, put anybody in the headlock, manipulate anybody, force anybody. That's not the gospel. If you don't want to come to Jesus, it's an invitation. It's, a, it's, it's an offer of salvation. Jesus is not trying to attract fans. Religious people, maybe always, but especially it seems today, are fond of crowds. We want to attract more people, you hear. Even if that means changing God's word. Well, if that attracts more people, we just change God's word. Even if that means disobeying God. Well, if it attracts more people, we'll just disobey God. Even if it means rejecting the very words of the very Jesus they claim to be following, we'll just change the words. You know Jesus never did that because Jesus wasn't interested in just crowds. Jesus was inviting us to be a follower. The invitation is an offer of fellowship, and it's yours for the taking. But in this, in this relationship, Christ saves and we submit. In this relationship, Christ gives grace and we show gratitude. In this relationship, he reigns and we serve. And so to an audience in John and Luke chapter 14, Jesus would say, count up the cost. If you don't want this life, count up the cost. It might be the case that you believe that the requirements are too high for you. And so count up the cost. And three times in Luke 14, 25 to 35, he said, you cannot be my disciple. If you aren't willing to love father, mother, sister, brother less than you love me, then you can't be my disciple. If you are not willing to love your own self less than you love me, then you can't be my disciple. He said it three times. But if you turned away and didn't follow the Lord, truth is you wouldn't be the first. You know, in John chapter 6, the Lord started with a lot more disciples than he ended that chapter with. Because in John chapter 6 and verse 66, the Bible says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You got to read the chapter. Just see what he said. All he did was teach. And what they heard, they said, that's too much. We're not going to do that. And so they made a stake right there, and they stopped following Jesus. And you know what Jesus said? 
You know what Jesus did? I can assure you this. He didn't do what many are doing today. He didn't run behind them and say, we'll change the message. He didn't chase after them and say, wait a minute, I didn't mean it. He didn't say, well, come back, come back, please, we'll fix it. No. He turned to his 12 and he said, will you also go away? Peter often spoke up, but we're glad he spoke up this time. Peter said something that everybody needs to ponder. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, Jesus says you have to be baptized. It's the last step that puts you into Christ. In fact, that's where the salvation is. You ever had somebody in your house that needed to find something and you told them it's in this place? It's in the closet. It's in the closet. It's in the cabinet. It's in there. And they look everywhere in the house but where you say it. No, it's in there. I can't find it. It's in there. I can't see it. It's in there. I, I, it's in there. You know, this used to bother parents so bad that if you didn't find it and they did, they would threaten your life. Listen, if I come in there and find it, I'm telling you, that, if, I, if I come in there and find it, what are they saying? It's in there. Let me ask you a question. Where is salvation? Where would one find that? I'm searching for salvation. Tell me where to find it. If I could hold salvation, the Bible would take salvation and say, salvation is, open the door, it's inside of Jesus. Paul says, therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He would write to the Ephesians, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are in Christ Jesus. Friends, you can't hear yourself into Jesus. You can't believe yourself into Jesus. You can't repent yourself into Jesus. You can't confess yourself into Jesus. The salvation is in Jesus. What do I need to do to get into Jesus? The Bible says you have to be baptized. For as many of us have put on Christ, as many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Galatians 3, 27. Romans 6, 3 through 5 describes it in these words. Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. That's why you have to be baptized. Because the salvation is in Christ. And baptism puts you into Christ. Jesus said you needed to do this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Peter just comes straight out and says, baptism now saves us. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 21. Peter, Luke records to Saul of Tarsus, why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins. How are you going to do any of this without being baptized? And yet there will be people. Well, you don't need to be baptized. In fact, some people will bristle at what's been said this morning for a variety of reasons. But some of the things they'll offer up are things like, well, John 3.16 says all you have to do is believe. First of all, John 3.16 does not say all you have to do is believe. It's not what that verse says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. It doesn't say all you have to do is believe. In fact, in the same chapter, John 3, 3 through 5, Jesus has already discussed being born again. And so it's not a matter of, well, it doesn't say it in this verse. 
in order to be born again, you have to obey the gospel. 1 Peter 2, 22 to 25, it's obedience to the truth. It's through the living word. It's through the word preached unto you. And it's right back to Mark 16, 15 and 16. The word is what tells you what to do. And that word is going to tell you to be baptized. There is no passage that has everything in it, not one. Mark 16, 15 and 16 has belief in baptism in it, but it doesn't have hearing and confession in it. It doesn't have repentance in it. Does that mean you don't have to do them? That's not what that means at all. Acts 2 and verse 37 and 38 said, now when they heard this, well, it doesn't say anything about confession. It says repent and be baptized. It doesn't say anything about confession or, or belief. Does that mean you don't have to do them? It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, the same gospel is taught to every person in the first century. It's just a matter of where the start point is. And so if you'll read the words of Peter in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, Peter preached Acts 2, and Peter preached Acts 10, and Paul preached Acts 17. Compare the passages. But every one of those groups were baptized. Every single one where anybody was saved. What are you doing when you're being saved? Friends, if you have heard anything other than what you heard today, you have not told the truth about salvation. If you were pronounced saved without doing all the things that you've heard today, and in this order, then friends, you are not saved. Somebody say, well, Eric, that is awful narrow-minded. Friends, listen, I'm sorry if you will. I mean, if you need me to apologize, I apologize for anything that you think I may have done by way of offense. I'll not apologize for Scripture. The Bible just says it, and it's just a matter of whether or not we're going to do it. Does it have to be in that order? Friends, we understand order. When God gives order, when God says do a thing a particular way, that's how you have to do it. We live that way every single day of our lives. You got a phone number, don't you? Now, I know nobody ever memorizes phone numbers anymore, but I remember a long time ago, I believe our phone number used to be 9640276, something to that effect, 9640276. Here's what we know about phone numbers. You can take all of those same numbers and you can dial them, but if you don't dial them in order, you won't reach your destination. Somebody say, well, they're all the numbers. That's right. But if you start interposing the numbers, you can have all the same numbers. You will not reach your destination. We understand order every single day of our lives. Person cannot be saved without hearing and learning. Person cannot hear and learn. They cannot believe until they hear and learn. Person cannot repent until they believe and hear. Jesus says you have to confess. You don't confess him. He won't confess you. And the Bible says baptism is what puts you into Christ. Now, friends, that's God's plan of salvation. I only hope that every New Testament Christian will keep preaching it and keep living it and keep sharing it. Because if they don't get the words, then they can't be saved. Not a Christian this morning haven't obeyed the gospel. We beg you and invite you. Do so now as we stand and as we sing.